Okay, Naganago Mekoche Chestokom Aki. Hi, my name is Red Thunder Woman. My married English name is Michelle Robinson, and I use she and her pronouns. Native Calgarian is being recorded on the lands of the Nitsitapi, which is the Blackfoot Confederacy. The Blackfoot south of the imposed U.S. Canadian border are the Blackfeet, and north of the border are the Siksika, Gunai, and Bagani of the Confederacy. These lands are Treaty 7, signed September 22, 1877, with signatures that include the Blackfoot Confederacy, the Stony Nakoda, composed of the Wesley, Chiniki, and Bearspaw Nations, and the Dene from the Sutina Nation. I acknowledge all First Nation, Métis, status, non-status, Inuit as caretakers of these lands of Turtle Island that a lot of folks call North America. All First Nations, all non-Indigenous are actually treaty partners. And for me, as somebody who comes from uh, Treaty 11, I'm actually a visitor here to Treaty 7. I honor the Blackfoot. I was born in Calgary, or Blackfoot Mukinstis, as Michelle Elliott, an English name, which has afforded me great privilege in an English colonial world. My mother is Northern Slavey Dene, or Satu Dene, but my Indian Act imposed uh, status card by the Canadian government says Yellow Knives Dene. My father is so Canadian. I am a daughter of the Mayflower and a daughter of the American Revolution, while having an Indian Act imposed status card. I acknowledge my Dene lineage and I was born in Calgary, but my family is not part of the Treaty 7 signatories. My Dene lineage roots me in the land of the Hare people, also called the Great Bear Lake people in Treaty 11. I'm a native to Turtle Island and my Dene nation is a visitor to this area of Klincho Tinne Indahe in Satu Dene, meaning many horse town, named after the Calgary Stampede. Land acknowledgements are critical for creating a safer space for Indigenous, as well as honoring the host as a guest and acknowledging your role as a treaty partner. My humblest apologies to the Blackfoot elders and language keepers as I try to learn proper pronunciation. Any mistakes or misinterpretations will be on me. I encourage questions so that misunderstandings can be cleared up as soon as possible. I do not speak on behalf of all Indigenous, but I share what I know as I walk down my red road. If you're experiencing emotional distress, after hearing anything we talk about today and want to talk, call the First Nation and Inuit Hope for Wellness Helpline at 1-855-242-3310. It is toll free, open 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And for non-Indigenous, there are distress center lines in your area too. My Patreon account is Native Calgarian where you can pledge and support. Thank you to my previous donors already showing your support. If you value listening and can afford to give, thank you. For those that cannot not afford to give but would like to listen in, I'd love to hear from you at nativeyyc at gmail.com where you can send in your comments or questions. I have a YouTube channel and I would love to have you subscribe for podcasts. We're on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. And I'd like to give a shout out to my super loyal donors, Adam, Alexandria, Beatrice, Ben, Beth, Brian, Kat, Celine, Christina, Crystal, Diane, Diana, actually, Jana, Jenny, Jocelyn, Judy, Karen, Kathy, Kenna, Leah, Alisi, Marcy, or Marisa, Melissa, uh, Morami, Natalie, Nathan, Rebecca, The Sprawl, Shara, Sharon, Tammy, Tiffany, Vanessa, and Veronica. And with that, I'm really pleased to on to have somebody on my show that I never expected that he would say yes to. So welcome, Patrick Brazo. I would love for you to introduce yourself in your way. Well, thank you uh, very much, Michelle, for for having me, and uh, thank you for that uh, 
that intro. Um, you know, my name is uh, Patrick Brazo. I'm a senator of Canada and also, and more importantly, I'm a, a member of the uh, Kirigan Zibia Anishinaabeg Reserve near Maniwaki, uh, Quebec. Awesome. So I guess how, in relation to Ottawa, how close are you to home? Uh, well, with respect to uh, home, uh, it's about a, an hour and a half drive north of uh, of Ottawa, but on the on the Quebec side, so uh, it's, sure. it's not very far away. But I but I currently live in Montreal now. Oh, cool! So that's not uh, that's kind of interesting. I um I'm from Alberta, always been in Alberta. So uh, I wish I could you know say bonjour and speak to you in French, but it, I would just be butchering the language and that would be painful. There's no sense in me going down that road. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I speak sometimes. I, I also butcher the language. Uh, do you speak your own language at all? Uh, I, I started uh, learning uh, very recently, very slowly. There's a, there's an app uh, uh, online which I've been uh, you know carefully listening to and. Uh, trying to learn, but it's, uh, you know, maybe uh, I'm getting old, but it's never too old to learn. So uh, I'm taking it very slowly, but I, I don't, uh, unfortunately, speak my language fluently. However, uh, I've known uh, a few words here and there, a few sentences uh, over the years, but uh, I'm getting into it now. That's good. Yeah, same. I actually don't know much of my language. I know Masi Cho kind of as a thank you, and even that sounds like uh, it might have even been a more southern slavey um, Dene. So like they're south and north, and uh, we're we're north. So I have to learn more from my own people. But I think I'm going to have to go really far up north, and I, um, you know, that's uh, something I should just do for myself so that I can learn that because the app doesn't, you know, like it's a guide, and same with the dictionary that we have online. But you know, it's not the same as learning it, right? So, yeah. No, exactly. And, and during my uh, during my time or my generation, uh, the language wasn't uh, taught as it is now. And so, uh, certainly, the kids of today, today, and the youth are are certainly uh, having more opportunities to learn their language as opposed to uh, to uh, people of uh, my age. Yeah, you and I are actually really close because I was looking you up, and you were born in '74, and I was born in '77. So we're not that. You know, I feel like you and I have more of an understanding because we're that older generation. So, well, compared to what the new kids are exposed to. <laughs> I, I keep telling people that I had to know when the library was open, plan my week to go there, and then, you know, do my research. That kind of, like, that's, we didn't have these phones where it's like a constant, you know, um, computer with you. We didn't have that, so. We, we still had wires and, and cords. <laughs> Party lines. Um, I, I share the story that when I was trying to find uh, uh, university funding, I was trying to call Yellowknife and I was trying to call Ottawa and both at that time there wasn't even like 1-800 numbers. So there was no getting an education with any of that kind of funding. I knew that wasn't going to be a, a thing in my world. So, uh, But now they have like you know these, these uh, sharing circles and such right in the universities now like like a whole room dedicated for indigenous people. Well, certainly times uh, uh, have changed and are continuing to change at a rapid pace. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I was really grateful to see your tweet that uh, about your sobriety, and that was what prompted me to reach out to you. And what you prompted your your people reached out to me to prompt this, and I was really excited to hear from your people. Frankly, that uh, you'd be interested to talk about 
some of the, you know, topics that are going to be probably tougher for other people to listen to, but yet I feel it's so normalized in our community. Um, so, you know, I was talking to you about sobriety and I would love to hear from your point of view, what sobriety looks like to you right now in your, in your red road. Well, essentially, uh, you know, I, I've been, uh, I've been, uh, clean and sober for, uh, for quite, uh, for quite some time now, but, uh, I did um, have uh, a lot of problems with uh, alcohol and uh, other substance abuse issues uh, for a very short period of time, actually. Um, you know, I, I, I did have some, uh, some personal and professional problems and legal issues uh, that lasted for, seemed like a, a lifetime, but uh, lasted for uh, three or four years. And it's, it's really in those years that um, I really uh, took it to an, a different level. Uh, I had uh, no more self-esteem. I, you know, my circle of friends, uh, uh, you know, re reduced uh, itself when I was having problems. And so I quickly saw who my friends were and uh, who uh, just wanted uh, to be close to, uh, you know, perhaps a, a politician. But having said that, um, you know, I, I, I was in a time uh, where I, you know, I abused of substances and literally hit rock bottom. Uh, you know, as you're very well aware, I was suspended without pay from the Senate for, for almost three years uh, because um, an agency called Deloitte questioned spending for $141. And so uh, because they questioned that $141, I got suspended for almost three years without pay. So um, I, I, I hit rock bottom. Uh, I had no money, uh, nowhere else to turn, no self-esteem. And... Uh, you know, it came a time and a, a point where uh, I also attempted to commit suicide. And uh, it was shortly after um, I, I got back into the Senate in 2016 that I decided to look at myself in the mirror. And uh, because I wanted a better life, I wanted a more normal life, a more quiet life. Um, and, and I wanted to respect myself again because I, you know, I was uh, born and raised by very good parents. And you know, I had a very good upbringing, but somewhere along the way, uh, I had problems, just like many, many other Canadians, whether indigenous, indigenous or not. Uh, but mine was highly publicized. Uh, so, so that was quite difficult. Uh, but, you know, uh, to make a long story short, um, you know, I'm always willing to share my story, my side of the story, uh, to people who want to listen. Uh, and uh, that's why I, I agreed to, to do this with you. And, uh, you know, I'm just happy to say that in 2020, I'm I'm clean and sober. I'm I'm living a life that I'm enjoying. I'm enjoying my kids. I'm also enjoying my work. And uh, you know, I'm just you know the, like the old cliche. I'm just living it uh, one day at a time. And uh, you know, but I but it's safe to say that now I'm in a, a place where I certainly when I wake up in the morning, uh, I'm I'm happy to wake up and I I look forward to the day, even though sometimes they they are still difficult. But uh, no, it's been a it's been a long. Uh, a long journey, but uh, I think I'm I'm on the right path. But uh, nothing is uh, etched in stone, as they say. Right. Um, thank you so much for sharing all of that with us. I, uh, you know, was kind of googling you and and seeing that you had done an interview as recently as December talking about suicide, and uh, I I believe that you know you speaking about it is really uh, positive for other people to hear it. My. Uh, husband and I, we've been really lucky to be doing that uh, white bison work with uh, the 12 steps and the, 
medicine wheel. And then I do more of the uh, mending broken hearts, which is really talking about that complex trauma that we acquire in our lifetime that and I just find as native people like mainstream media and a lot of the 12 step programs, one, they're based around Christianity, but second of all, that they, they don't understand our issues and they don't hear it and they almost think we're making it up. So it's really hard for us to be dealing with our, you know, our trauma that is the root of the addiction issues. If we, we can't even be open and honest about, you know, our personal experiences and then the experiences of our families. So. Well, it, it, it's certainly a, a difficult topic, but, um, you know, having uh, had the unfortunate experience uh, in terms of uh, trying to commit suicide, uh, ironically, um, I, I was asked to go to, uh, to the Enoch uh, Nation upon invitation uh, just before Christmas uh, of, uh, of, of this year. And, um, you know, I gave a talk about uh, my experiences and my struggle and uh, I, I hopped on a plane and uh, was coming back to Ottawa from Edmonton. And uh, all of a sudden, I just uh, got uh, two emails from uh, two different educators saying that uh, after my talk and because of my talk, there's, there's a student that came forward. And these were young students ranging from 8 to uh, 16, I believe. Uh, but uh, one student uh, uh, came forward and asked for help. Uh, and, and because of the talk, and I think that the fact that I'm in a position uh, in the Senate and the fact that, you know, I, I was formerly a First Nations leader, I was formerly a partisan uh, member of parliament, uh, but no longer. I'm proudly independent. That's the way it should be. But I think it puts me in a very good position to speak to 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 our people, to Indigenous people, because... One, we shouldn't have any shame if we're going through problems. Uh, two, we should certainly have a circle of friends or people we can reach out to uh, in case of need. Uh, and, and three, uh, like I mentioned, um, because of the, the, the past wrongdoings and the historic past between uh, the government of Canada and First Nations people in this country, uh, no, we, sh we, we, we should stand up and be proud of who we are and and not hide and and not be ashamed because on a personal level I'm just speaking for myself but I came to a point where um, I was ashamed of myself uh, I didn't believe in myself anymore and and my rise to to where I became was quite fast but uh, so was my downfall and the reason uh, I decided to to become sober um, was because I wanted to get back on that right path and. Um, and, and that's why I, I introduced uh, also in the Senate a motion so that a Senate committee uh, study the issues of mental health and suicide prevention, in particular, uh, with particular emphasis for uh, young men and boys, because we know that young men and boys sometimes keep things bottled up inside. And when things do come out, uh, sometimes they come out with rage or a lot of anger uh, and people get in trouble, uh, myself included. And so I think it's time that uh, that First Nations people see perhaps somebody who's out there who's who's like them, um, because I, I I've lived it, and if I can give back in any way that I can, uh, you know that's that's what I'm working on doing, and that's what I'll continue to do from from this day forward. Right on. I appreciate you sharing that. I um I think of a lot of folks, especially our boys and our men right now, that need that those role models, and it looks like. Um, you know, from what has happened with Ian Campano 
and a few of the women that are speaking out against basically a lot of the toxic culture that a lot of women are facing with uh, violence against men and such. Um, and I, I'm just going to give a quick background too, because I'm a liberal and I've been a part of the Indigenous Peoples Commission. So I've been following you and your, you know, your ups and your downs, and and um, and even in your worst parts, though, um, it bothered me because I seen, I seen the way the media kind of attacked you differently than the non-Indigenous. But that's me. That's me. What did you think of it at the time? Like, did you think that you were being treated? the same as like Kamala Wallen and, and Duffy, like, or did you think that there was a difference because you were First Nation? Well, in hindsight, which is supposed to be 2020 or very close to it, um, uh, you know, I think I, I, I was treated differently because I was Indigenous, because there's, there's a lot more to the story of, of the so-called quote-unquote Senate scandal as uh, people were led to believe or what people actually know. Um, because you, you can't believe everything that you read in newspapers and everything you, you see and you hear uh, in the media. But uh, having said that, uh, I, yeah, I, I was certainly treated differently um, because uh, having been part of the Conservative caucus uh, at the time, uh, I wasn't bringing a whole lot of votes to the Conservative Party. Um, uh, and so I, I guess uh, they, they, it was easy for me to, to throw under the bus. They tried their best. Uh, to do that, uh, but it didn't work. Uh, but, but having said that, uh, you know, I, I'm back in the Senate now. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a proud independent because, you know, I, I, I realized this a long time ago, but I, I was still a partisan at the time trying to be part of a, a team. But, um, Club, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, uh, like I said, I, I tried my best to, to be part of the team, but, um, you know, it's so easy for, for politicians to, to throw Indigenous peoples under the bus. Uh, there, there have been others. Uh, I wasn't the first one, and I certainly won't be the last one. Uh, but, but as politicians, as Indigenous politicians, I think we need to, to stand up more and, and for these things not to happen, because um, at the end of the day, if they continue to happen, then Indigenous peoples are just being viewed as, as perhaps government puppets. Yeah. Uh, and faces to put in front of a camera saying, well, we have the indigenous vote or, or you, know, you know, and that can uh, occur with other mi uh, visible minorities. So I'm a proud independent because at the end of the day, you know, conservative, uh, NDP, liberals, other, every political party have something to bring to the table. Now, I disagree about how it's being played and, and perhaps the way that they introduce things. And, you know, there's that part, of, it's called partisanship. Uh, but you know, I, I just view my role uh, similar to uh, perhaps uh, an elders council now. Uh, you know, I'm not, I, I don't view myself as a politician. I, I'm a senator uh, who's supposed to review government legislation. And in areas where uh, it needs uh, improvement, then there's amendments that can be made. But uh, if I receive a piece of legislation, I don't play that partisan game saying, well, if it comes from liberals, it's bad. Or if it comes from conservatives, it's bad. Uh, it, it's just, uh, I, I just do the work based on its merits and uh, you know unfortunately I'm, I'm not part of that uh, of any political party but uh, it's certainly uh, also positive not to take uh, direction from from decisions uh, that are basically already made in advance and and yeah. so uh, it's, it's more interesting now I believe for myself yeah I, I know politics is so hard for us as indigenous people because like I read your 
Um, so I was born and raised in Alberta. So I've heard the rhetoric about Senate reform my entire life. And when, you know, Harper got in with this majority and didn't do it, I was like, uh-huh, shocking. Uh, but that bigger picture was that you had actually wrote uh, an op-ed about that as well. And, um, you know, so, and I'm, even though I'm a liberal, there are a lot of things that, of course, I have to side with my people first. And um, an example of that right now is the OPP just, you know, arrested 10 of our people um, out east. And I, and overland claims, as always. And, um, you know, I just, it's hard for us as Indigenous people to be political because for non-Indigenous, they are so uh, partisan and they see you as not always agreeing and somehow being against. Like, it's just so black and white. And it's like, why can't you hear that dialogue? Why can't you hear that there's a cultural perspective here that, um, you know, you and I may actually agree on for, for once. But I, I know, you know, it took me a long time to undo my conservative thinking because I was born and raised here. And uh, when I came out as a liberal, that was kind of a big deal being in Calgary. <laughs> so I, what's it like where you're from? Like, is it like pretty red or pretty blue? And, and you, you just fell into that? Or how does that work for your partisanship? Well, actually, I, I was never really partisan until uh, actually I became the national chief of the Congress of Aboriginal Peoples. Because mm -hmm. uh, while I was chief there, uh, uh, National Chief Phil Fontaine was, uh, was as the head of the Assembly of First Nations. And uh, here I was, uh, fairly young, uh, young national leader. And, uh, you know, I, I tried to, uh, to work with every uh, national Indigenous organization, including the Assembly of First Nations. But, um, you know, uh, uh, I guess they had, uh, they, they too had a little bit of partisanship because uh, they wanted nothing to do with uh, this, this off-reserve uh, Indigenous organization, and so uh, I quickly learned the hard way, and I even learned from from our own uh, our own people as well. But uh, but having said that, you know, politics will always exist, and it's unfortunate that sometimes we have to feel that we either fit on one side or the other side. But let's not forget, it is the political parties themselves and the media that lead people to to, to be either on one or, or or the other side, and 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 we don't need that to be uh, that way. And to play those games uh, like uh, mainstream politicians, mm. uh, I think that we have to perhaps refocus. Uh, that let's not forget the government of Canada has created a lot of divisions. Uh, even in your intro, uh, on reserve, off reserve, status, non-status, Métis, Inuit, and so uh, they are causing a lot of the divide. And even though uh, I'm the first one to admit it, I played in that game while I was uh, an Indigenous leader and. Uh, my first few years in the Senate, uh, but but no longer because we're just feeding into the system that that has broken our peoples and have frustrated our peoples and have led people into these poverty-stricken situations and others. And so, you know, for myself, I might be just one voice, but uh, it's enough of playing with these games. Sometimes you have to go along, sure, but uh, yeah. but we have to we have to stand proud about what exactly we stand for. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I wanted to ask you what it was. What was it like watching um, the whole fiasco with SNC Lavalin and uh, Jody Wilson Rainbow for you? Because uh, for me, I was seeing like really awful sexism and racism coming from Ottawa, from especially you know all those partisan hacks that are on like Twitter and such. Um, 
but then also in the media as well, like the way they reported reported the whole situation, it just seems so awful. But what was it like for you kind of watching, you know, Justin Trudeau try to navigate a really, really strong MP like Jody Wilson-Raybould? Well, look, uh, having uh, been part of a, uh, again, I use, uh, I use my fingers as question, without question mark, as quotation, but the Senate scandal, uh, when this, uh, when, when the SNC-Lavalin uh, issue began, I'm like, well, here we go again. And, uh, and my first thoughts were uh, poor uh, Minister uh, Wilson-Raybould. Uh, but then I, I sort of took a step back and I sort of uh, compared the two scandals, uh, the one that I was in and uh, the one that we had just a couple of years ago. And unfortunately, and, and, and I'm, my position is very strong on this, but unfortunately, we never get to the bottom of these so-called scandals uh, because of parliamentary privilege, because of uh, cabinet uh, secrecy, uh, whatnot. And so here we have a lot of people on social media and the media and politicians defending themselves and the media attacking or defending. Uh, but it's unfortunate because we never get to the bottom of what really happens. And so, and when people are found in, in uh, if they're found as to have broken ethics rules, uh, it's basically just a slap on the wrist. And, but, you know, when I look back at my own scandal, they question $141, which was, I had no receipt for a, um, a trip to Madawaki, Quebec, back to Ottawa. Uh, so that's what they, they questioned. And I got suspended for, for almost three years without pay. And I see a lot more serious allegations happening. And w what happens? Is it, is, it, is it privilege? Is it white privilege? Is it racial discrimination? Is it systemic discrimination? Um, but having said that, uh, unless we have all the facts of what happens, it's, it's very hard for me, perhaps because I've experienced it, to, to formulate an opinion. But uh, I just find it a little bit disgusting that we never get to the bottom of these things because it is the public's money and we have to be careful with it. And so um, having said that, uh, I will recuse myself from going any further into uh, <laughs> providing uh, <laughs> any further commentary on this. Yeah, no, I don't blame you. I uh, I just, watching it was uh, really difficult for me because obviously I was part of the team that wanted her elected along with a lot more Indigenous folks. And uh, and it was hard to even watch Indigenous attacking Indigenous. And um, so just for me personally, it was hard. And I, I run a book club now um, once a month. So it's been four years. Car Carolyn Bennett initiated it four years ago where she was like, hey, let's everybody start reading and had this like hashtag indigenous read. So, you know, I took up that man mantle and I'm like, absolutely, let, let's do that. And coincidentally, this month coming up is actually her book. So uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould's book. So I don't know if you got a chance to read it, but it's basically a lot of, uh, of her speeches. So, and I, I thought you out of all people would probably agree with a lot of the things she said, but you know, it's not, it doesn't actually get into the scandal itself. I just can't imagine what it would have been like living in Ottawa at the time. Um, that whole thing was going down. And of course, for you, of course, you've gone through it. So I would call that triggering in the sense that, you know, you're, you have to relive it again, but at, at least with distance. <laughs> well, 
exactly it brought uh, it brought about a little bit of my uh, ptsd uh, but uh, having said that when when uh, when that was occurring i i certainly tried to to reach out to uh, to uh, jody wilson raybold uh, because i i you know i was uh, i'd been through it um, and uh, you know we got to uh, to chat uh, a few times uh, we were supposed to meet uh, uh, just before uh, the holidays uh, that didn't occur but uh, but, yeah. uh, but I did because uh, I knew some of the things that she was going through. Uh, and, um, you know, I just, you know, um, just, you know, I, I, I'm a person who does have a heart and, you know, it, it was difficult to watch, certainly. No, it is weird to say this, but like, I know for non, non-Indigenous people, I see you as like a, you know, cousin. And I would imagine you've seen her as a cousin, even though you know, we're not related. It's just that bigger picture that as Indigenous people, we support each other, even even like regardless of partisanship and all of that stuff. And I think that is a really key issue that non-Indigenous don't understand about us. So it's, uh, I appreciate where you were coming from on that. And uh, I, I know I, I asked you about domestic violence, if you would be comfortable talking about that. And I, I wanna bring it kind of back to that idea of like toxic male co- culture, patriarchy, colonialism, and what colonialism has taught our our boys and our men. Because here you are, you know, walking down this new road of uh, recovery and and going down this journey. So like, what are some things that you think that are important to talk about when it comes to domestic violence and messages to our boys and our our young men um, about how easy it is to get caught up in that and why it happens and things like that. How do you, how do you feel talking about things like that to young, young men? Well, I'm, I'm actually uh, very comfortable because um, uh, one, my, uh, my, uh, my partner, my current partner is uh, a PhD candidate uh, in, um, in educa- education uh, in psychology. Uh, and I also surrounded myself. Well, I'm, par- I'm also doing some nonprofit work for a, a foundation called the Aquarium Foundation, which is made up of some of the best uh, psychiatrists, uh, psychologists uh, in Montreal and even perhaps in the country. Uh, and so I think a lot of it, uh, not all of it, but a lot of it uh, comes uh, with issues of socialization, how young girls are, are raised by parents. Uh, and how uh, young boys are raised by parents, and I'm just speaking for myself here. Um, you know, I was raised to be a, a tough, a tough kid. Uh, you know, to to you know not cry or not not show too much emotion uh, growing up. And uh, I think uh, you know, no fault of my parents because that's what they knew. But I think that um, uh, that that's what's needed a conversation around that because I think it's okay for for young boys. Uh, to show emotion, to cry when they want to cry, to to shout when they want to shout, and I think the whole issue of um, uh, the past wrongs that were done by government onto Indigenous peoples uh, may have not set uh, the right conditions uh, for having the best parents. Uh, you know, obviously not finger pointing here, but I'm talking about the system. I mean, in, Indigenous peoples who went to residential schools, I, I did not. I was lucky. Uh, thank, <laughs> thank the creator. Yeah, <laughs> uh, but but you know I I I I I certainly realize the the pains and the struggles uh, and the ongoing pains and struggles that people who went to residential schools have today, and uh, I know that uh, I certainly realize and recognize that it's tough for these people uh, to be to be good parents, 
because indigenous peoples have been have been throughout history uh, very good parents. Uh, you know, men and women had roles uh, to play uh, to to unite the family and to keep the families uh, together. And so it's a little bit more challenging now. And um, it's sad to say, but it's it probably going to take uh, a lot more time for for people to heal. But the reason, one of the reasons why I introduced this motion in the Senate uh, to study issues of uh, mental health and, and suicide prevention is for Indigenous peoples in, in particular to have access to resources if they need help. Uh, because sometimes 1-800 numbers, while they're, they're great for, for a lot of people, sometimes it just doesn't cut it for Indigenous peoples. We, we, need, we need first-hand contact and... You know, th th this is what I'm trying to uh, to do with introducing this motion to see what services are out there, what works, what does not work, and how we can do better. Because, um, you know, I, I I was a person in a pretty prestigious uh, position. Uh, I had problems. I tried to commit suicide, and luckily, uh, we are having this conversation about it. And thank God. And, and I'm a much better person and a much happier person uh, for it. And and this is why. It's so important to give back because that's that's the best thing is that we can do as humans is is to give back and help and if we can't do that anymore, who are we? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm glad I'm glad you're uh, working with this group. And is it something that is going to be available? Do you think like do you think that they have really understanding though of indigenous issues because that is a huge stumbling block I find in Calgary here where. You know, we have mainly settlers with Christian backgrounds, imposed Christianity. Um, and, and just for full disclosure, I come from domestic violence. My husband and, and I uh, have gone through so much counseling together to help me from my childhood. And um, it was my, my granny and my, my grandfather that went to Indian residential school. And the cycle of domestic violence and abuse has just continued through all of these generations. And um, and my dad, you know, white guy, had no concept of what Indian residential school was, didn't understand all of this stuff. So they had a nasty divorce. <laughs> it was awful. But my cousin, who still lives up in Yellowknife and that, like we're talking about, you know, my granny still being proud that despite all the domestic violence and there were some other issues that he ended up in jail for, she still stayed married to him because that, that was that, you know, Indian residential school, um, Catholic spiritual abuse saying that you stay with your husband, even if he's going to kill you. And, um, you know, so when you talked about the ramifications of Indian residential school, I don't think people understand the gravity of, you know, dehumanizing us, you know, saying, uh, you were talking about self-esteem, like basically crippling our self-esteem and our spirituality. Um, you know, our old ways looked down upon. And then this new idea of Christianity where you have to stay with your husband no matter what. Like that's its own spiritual abuse on top of the other spiritual abuses that they gave to us. So, you know, I don't think people quite understand where that domestic violence is really rooted from. And um you know, and then obviously having no control. You, out of all people, um, talked out, uh, spoke out against the Indian Act, especially when you were with the Congress. And um, and by the way, I tried to join that prior to you being a part of it, but after. And I, I didn't find that they would, like, wanted me to be a part of the Alberta chapter. And I'm like, well, how do you expect this to grow? So, and there, we've had some nonprofit non folks here talk about the need for urban indigenous to have a voice at the table. So it should almost be, you know, First Nation, Métis, Inuit, and urban. 
right? Like that FMMI you. <laughs> so anyway, anyway, I just wanted to kind of bring that all up. Is there anything that you wanted to add to what I was saying about domestic violence and, and um, Indian residential school and how it's kind of compounded that non-Indigenous wouldn't understand? Well, for, first, I'm not a, an expert in the, uh, in, in the subject matter, but having said that, um, any type of abuse should be uh, zero. Um, and unfortunately, what, I, what I've seen with people that, uh, because I, I went to rehab on, on several occasions and, and met a lot of um, uh, men who, um, who were in you know, domestic violence uh, relationships and whatnot, and a lot of it uh, had to do because of substance abuse. Because if you took away the substance abuse, then, then these men were, were very normal and very nice to, uh, to, to, to talk about. And when they opened up, and um, it, it was uh, completely different people uh, that you were talking to. And so, unfortunately, that when, when people get involved in domestic violence relationships or situations, uh, perhaps uh, they feel as if it's the norm. Um, but, but here I am saying that I also have experience in these issues and it should never be the norm for anyone, whether it's men or women, because I've also, um, uh, seen men who have been in abusive relationships and they were on the receiving end. And so imagine a man who, who gets hit by a woman, for example, um, do you think that man will just go up to to anyone and, and, and uh, be open and honest about it? Uh, no, but uh, the point is that whether it's, it's a man or a woman or a young woman or a young man in these types of relationships, uh, it, 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 it should not, uh, and obviously I'm not telling anybody what to do, but it, it should not be accepted anytime, anywhere. Uh, and, and that hence is the need to get uh, help and, and to call even call somebody you don't know or on the street. Uh, there's always somebody willing to help, but it's up to the person to take that chance. And it's not always easy, but I think the more and more we talk about issues and more and more Indigenous people stand up and say that either they're abused or they were abusive, I, I think that would go a, a long way to healing people who are um, unfortunately in these uh, these difficult situations. I know. Um... I really appreciate you saying that because I think it is important for everyone to know it is not okay to be in an abusive relationship. And there's a lot of, you know, things that lead up to that, that controlling and the conversation and the uh, violent conversation sometimes that um, we'll say to each other unknowingly and such. So I appreciate you saying that because I think it's important that everybody knows that it's not okay to be in these situations and to uh, perpetrate it and to maybe separate if you are you know, in the cycle of abuse, so that that way, both people, both parties can heal. Um, I don't know if you know, but I'm uh, a part of the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls Committee here in Calgary. And, um, you know, a, a big conversation is that accountability, but there's so much accountability that so many people don't want to, you know, be a part of. Um, and especially, you know, we're talking community level, municipal level, provincial level, and then federal level. How, do you ever see these 231 calls to justice being implemented? Well, I, uh, I, <laughs> in a perfect world, I, I, I would like to see them implemented. But uh, realistically, I think it's going to take uh, a lot of time. I think a lot of 
good work has been done over the past uh, just uh, several years, uh, to, to be honest. Uh, but it's still not where we should be and where we, we uh, deserve to be. Mm -hmm. uh, and so governments uh, take a, a lot of time to move forward sometimes. Um, but I, I think, uh, like I said, I think that there's good, uh, good steps that have been taken. Uh, but there's, you know, like the old cliche says, and I sound like a politician when, when I say this, but uh, there's a lot more to do. But uh, when, when I say there's a lot more to do, it shouldn't take uh, decades to do it. Right, um, because we're talking our cap from 1996. That's over 20 years now. You know, I, so I, I feel you there. I, I get very frustrated that we're not moving quicker. But like you said in one interview, you know, that's not the way it works and we wish it did. <laughs> well, uh, exactly. Even, even when I uh, was named to the Senate, uh, here I was young and uh, ready to, uh, to change the world. And um, I quickly found out that uh, uh, not only did I have to wait in line because the issues that I wanted to work on didn't matter to uh, my colleagues at the time, uh, but uh, because I was young and uh, you have to wait your turn. And so uh, I uh, unfortunately learned the uh, the hard way, but uh, um, not over yet. Yeah, I know. I hear you. Some days I'm like, "Is am I done here or, or what? But they always say, no, 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 there'll be more. There'll be more opportunity for you to put in your voice. So I'm like patiently waiting. <laughs> uh well, you, you, you just mentioned RCAP. Well, let's, let's just say that, uh, you know, in my lifetime, governments have been very good at allowing dust to uh, collect over recommendations that would solve a lot of uh, problems and recommendations made by both conservative and liberal governments, by the way. Uh, but they've been very good at just letting the dust uh, stack on those uh, fine recommendations that would make a huge difference in the lives of the majority of Indigenous peoples in this country. I agree. I'm right there with you. And I, you know, I also seen the TRC, it's already been five years. And, um, you know, I would argue that not much has been done on that as well. So it's, uh, in, in some ways, it feels very defeating. But at the same time, I know that there's just these little pockets of hope that we can continue with. And I think that, uh, you know, for you and I, who have, you know, very strong political ambitions to get things done for the people, but yet, you know, in your case, you went through an awful, awful experience. And I don't wish that on anybody, that public, you know, conversation that was put upon you. And there was no racial lens. And I think, too, because, uh, you know, that conversation, nobody's ready to have that conversation. Today, it kind of seems a little different with the Black Lives Matter conversation. But uh, I, I still don't really think Canada is ready to address their racism in any way, shape or form. And um, despite it being an RCAP, TRC, you know, the inquiry, it's so painfully clear what the problem is, but <laughs> yeah. Is there anything else you'd like to add before we, we go here? Well, uh, just, just on that point, uh, unfortunately there's, there's always a lot of nice words on behalf of governments, but that doesn't necessarily translate into concrete, uh, and applicable, uh, uh solutions. Um, but uh, look, uh, you know, I, there, there's a lot of Indigenous uh, members of Parliament, uh, both on, in the House of Commons and on the Senate side. And, you know, we're trying to work uh, together as, as best that we can to bring uh, issues to the forefront when need be. Uh, and we're going to continue doing that. But, uh, but 
um, make no mistake about it, it's it's an uphill struggle. Whether you you're more supportive of the liberals or it doesn't really matter. It's it's a, it's an uphill battle uh, yeah. because you convince uh, way too many. And I hate to say this because because my mom is is white, but way too many white thinkers. Uh, and you know, I I think the future uh, where change is going to happen is when political parties uh, adapt to adapt to this change and less partisanship. I I don't see that happening either, but. Uh, that's that's the sport that uh, I guess I was made for, but just uh, practicing it uh, a whole lot uh, differently now. <laughs> no kidding. Um, I, I think of uh, like all of the different colonial parties and all of the colonial uh, folks that are running them. I just, it doesn't matter the color. It's still colonial politics for white supremacy. And, it, and I, I'm with you, like my dad is white, but you know, it is very clear to me now that I've done you know, a few years of anti-racism work and a few years of learning that language of understanding what I'm seeing of white supremacy, that it's like, I don't know if, if we can change the system, but I have a lot of hope with like you, you have Lillian Dick. Um, so Patty Lubicon uh, Benson and um, of course, Senator Sinclair. My ho hope is always that whenever there's like something that comes up, your your eyes are at least looking at it. So, are there any proud, um, you know, amendments that have come you've come across that you're really proud of? Uh, amendments in terms of yeah, some of the bills that have come kind of across your your um, desk or that uh, projects that you've been really uh, passionate about. Like for example, Lily Dick put forward a, a bill about you know there being a higher um, charge against men who abuse indigenous women and of course it got tabled but like there must be some things that you've put out there like right now you're working on that uh, suicide uh, study where you want to see what more you want to do that um, you know resource um, uh, look and such and I was just wondering if there are other like amendments and bills that you were proud to be a part of. Well, in 2017, I believe, as an example, you're talking about uh, different organizations and the fact that uh, the uh, provincial uh, organization of the Congress for Aboriginal Peoples uh, didn't necessarily want you at, at the time or right before my time. And, and perhaps that's a different podcast and interview altogether. Sure. <laughs> there because it, it wasn't uh, very easy and it wasn't the... Uh, uh, the most, um, uh, you know, the, the nicest experience, although I did have a, a very good experience, but there, there's a lot that I can say about how, uh, how that functioned and how that organization functioned. Uh, but having said that, I, I had tabled the motion uh, that the government and the, um, uh, of Canada and the Royal and the RCMP uh, look uh, into organizations that are uh, basically selling membership cards to individuals who uh, could be uh, 12th to, to 20th generation First Nations, you know, fake, fake uh, indigenous organizations ah. uh, because they exist uh, quite a bit uh, in Ontario and Quebec. Uh, and um, uh, that fell off the, you know, that fell off the rails because of the, uh, the election, the federal election. And so there were steps that were, that uh, were taken by the RCMP in this, in this matter. There was an investigation. Uh, I haven't seen any, uh, concrete action with respect to their investigation um, and the government unfortunately uh, to my knowledge uh, didn't address this issue either uh, so that kind of fell off the rails uh, but uh, you know if I hear uh, any complaints from individuals saying that they're being misled into uh, 
paying membership uh, and believing that they're all of a sudden indigenous, uh, well, that doesn't sit well with me because I was part of an organization that had uh, some of these issues across the country that I also tried to address at the time. So it's, uh, that, that, but that's just a, as an example. That's a really big conversation, though, in itself to talk about uh, whatever those fake organizations that are, are popping up and such. And I know there's a big conversation on Twitter about that all the time. Um, I'm from Yellowknife and in, in the Northwest Territories, if you're partial Dene, you automatically become um, Métis if you can't qualify through Indian status anymore. So, um, you know, that's something worth thinking about with my daughter. But Senator Sinclair told me I have to do my paperwork for uh, my daughter's Indian Act card because he thinks of that new change that came forward. Is it S3 or S7? That um, my daughter should qualify now for status. So, <clears throat> Right. That would be uh, that would be S3. S3. Thank you. I'm like, I'm, I don't know, just early morning for me. <laughs> Anyway, thank you. Um, I'm gonna. So I have this um, ending that I do. It's quite long and extensive, but I don't. Um, I invite you to uh, stay with me, and I invite you to to interject if you hear uh, me talking about some things and you want to uh, put a perspective in. Because you know, one of the reasons why I was glad you agreed to do this is that you have a male lens that I don't. Um, and I work really more extensively with women who face violence. So as a result, you know, I would love to have you chime in as I as I do my kind of my closing. So thank you again for being on my show. And um, before we end, I just from the bottom of my heart, I wanted to give you sage and um, and talk to you about the Moosehide campaign. But then I was like, well, you're a senator and the stupid colonial politics would probably intervene and not even let me give you that. And it would be stuck in some basement in the in Ottawa and I don't want that so <laughs> if I had my way we would you know I would give you um some sage and and just I wanted to talk to you about the moose hide ceremony um that you know well I call it a ceremony but it's that bigger picture that men take that oath and and say that they are going to stand for indigenous women and girls and then they wear that moose hide as a symbol of, of that commitment. So, and I've seen some of some folks down in Ottawa wearing them, and I'm sure you must be aware of it. So, have you taken that oath? I have uh, taken that oath a long time ago, actually, uh, right from the get go, along with the Native Women's Association of Canada. Uh, and while Beverly Jacobs was the uh, was the president, and I was at the Congress of Aboriginal Peoples, uh, we. We had a, um, uh, a partnership uh, agreement signed between the two organizations to, to work on the, the issue of missing and murdered Indigenous women. And uh, contrary to, to what many um, people, Indigenous people, read uh, in, the, in the papers or saw in the media, um, you know, I, I was a strong advocate uh, for this issue and in calling an inquiry uh, you know, while I was with within the uh, the conservative um, uh, caucus, uh, and uh, that led a little bit to my downfall. Because uh, let, let me share this. I think this is very important to share. Um, I uh, there was a caucus meeting, and um, I stood up, and you know the the federal government had just commissioned uh, an inquiry on the missing uh, Pacific salmon stock. Oh. And, and there was about uh, five volumes, uh, you know, perhaps, uh, you know, just a little bit less than a foot thick of volumes of, of this inquiry. And, and I questioned, well, why aren't we having an inquiry for missing and murdered 
indigenous women and girls because uh, you know here we are spending a lot of money on missing missing salmon stock in the Pacific, uh, but what about uh, our mothers and grandmothers and sisters, etc.? And lo and behold, the the my my former colleagues who were once police officers, whether provincially or with the RCMP, uh, stood up and sort of. Um, uh, downplayed the need to have an inquiry because it was expensive and uh, we shouldn't look at police forces across the country because they're not necessarily a problem. And uh, I took issue with that. I, I didn't take issue with that uh, publicly. I, I kept it behind closed doors, but uh, I, I, um, I didn't make many friends uh, in my call for, for that, but I'm still proud that I did that. Uh, I'm very proud to this day and I, you know, I continue. I, I have a, you know, a soon-to-be five-year-old, uh, well, my youngest is soon-to-be five years old, and, but I have two other older daughters, and so uh, it, it's important. And uh, this, um, you know, I'm going to continue doing what I've been doing and standing, uh, you know, side by side with anybody who, who is willing to work with me because that, we, 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 don't need to, uh, we don't need to genderize uh, issues. Mm. Uh, we're a lot stronger and better when when we work together to solve these issues. Uh, and, and that's what's lacking in, in indigenous uh, circles and perhaps indigenous politics. Oh, goodness, yes. I'm so grateful that you'd be on the show and talk about that with us because, uh, yeah, that Congress, I thought, had a real potential for, you know, good um, progress when it came to indigenous issues. And, it, and I would fit in that world of, uh, you know, being an urban indigenous and wanting to stay nonpartisan, but... Um, you know, the Liberals ended up having that Indigenous Peoples Commission that was uh, very, you know, functional. So I was a part of that. I did reach out to the NDPs, but theirs didn't seem to be going. And I never seen one in the Blue Party. So that's why I never, never bothered. Well, that and my MP. My MP <laughs> at the time was the late, um, um, oh my God, I can't believe his name is escaping me. Uh, Deepak O'Brien. Sorry. Oh, yeah. That's my uh, my late MP, and now there's a new replacement for him, and I haven't even learned his name because I'm a liberal, and I I have found running both provincially and municipally that uh, it's definitely deaf ears that a lot of people hear our issues with, and they don't see it as our issue, like a Canadian Indigenous issue. No. They see it as our issue, and it, and that I find is so frustrating because like they have the audacity to bitch about you know, um, taxpayers' money. But then when we give them solutions that are, are cost-effective, they still don't listen. So I, I'm very much struggling with how we're going to bridge that. So, but again, that's that white supremacy. I don't know how, you, I don't know well, how to break that. <laughs> so anyway, I, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't going to bring this up, but I kind of have to, but I, my TV died and I wanted to watch this one last time. And is there anything you wanted to tell me about what it was like fighting now the current prime minister? Um, do you have any, uh, anything? Are you glad you did it? Well, of course I'm glad I did it uh, because I, I did it first and foremost uh, um, for, for cancer research. And I had lost my mom to, um, to lung cancer in 2004. Sorry. Uh, you know, I was fairly, I was still young. I think I was 29 when she passed away. And so uh, as far as I know, I was the third person he had asked. And, you know, I'm always looking forward to doing new things and, 
you know, I'm, I, I, te I generally tend to say yes. And so, uh, of course, I, I did it for my mom first and foremost. Um, but to make a long story short, um, I underestimated him. Uh, he had uh, 20 years experience in boxing. I had none. And uh, we had just, uh, I had uh, four months to, uh, to train. And, and so I thought I was going to, to easily win uh, and uh, perhaps knock him out, which I almost did in the first round. But then, uh, you know, I was just gassed. I had, I was, uh, I was, uh, you know, I was looking for oxygen uh, real bad and I, I ended up losing. And so uh, uh, we had a bet uh, that we were going to uh, get a haircut. As a matter of fact, I had proposed to him because I was so confident that the loser would get his head shaven. And he, and he had said, no, uh, I'm not into that. How about, okay, let's have uh, let's haircut. And so uh, the day after the uh, boxing match, um, I gave him a call. I gave uh, uh, Prime Minister Trudeau a call to congratulate him. And he had told me at the time that uh, uh, he had thought about it and he was only going to cut uh, a very minimal part of my hair because he knew what it meant to, uh, to Indigenous culture. And it was while, uh, you know, it was uh, live on, on TV, having a whole bunch of reporters for this, uh, this famous haircut on the hill. Uh, but I'm the one who decided to cut my hair and donate it uh, in memory of my mom. And uh, uh, like I said, I'm, I'm very, I'm, I'm happy I went through with it. I don't regret it. I'm still looking forward to my rematch. Uh, right on. Right on. <laughs> Um, actually, I was really afraid for Justin when you had agreed to do that because I remember you had served and that you were into mixed martial arts and I was like, Justin Trudeau's going to get his ass kicked. So I was not happy that he agreed to do it in any capacity. <laughs> I really thought you were going to kill him. <laughs> well, well, that's what I, that's what I thought as well, but I was uh, quickly mistaken and, you know, I, I, I learned from it, but... Uh... You know, it was uh, it was uh, it was worthwhile to do certainly because of the cause and not not just because of the partisanship. Uh, but there's only one problem in the title of the documentary you showed me, uh, because at the time that was released, which was shortly after uh, my personal uh, problems uh, had begun, it should have been "God Save Patrick Brazo, not Justin Trudeau. God, yes. No, I I've always thought I I wish. You know, how, how um, this was kind of put out was, uh, you know, as a documentary, I, I've always hoped that there would be an Indigenous filmmaker that would want to tell your story, because I think that our stories are really important. And I think that, uh, you know, just as we would look up to um, Elijah Harper for the work he had done with the, you know, holding up, um, oh, why is this escaping me? Not the Kelowna Accords, Mitch Lake. Uh, agreement that uh, you know you had your uh, I would say the the issues that came around you with your scandal and I hate saying it that way and I apologize for that terminology but that bigger picture that it you know you never got to tell your side of that story so if you ever want to um, you know continue this conversation or uh, expand on other parts or talk about uh, maybe a new project that's coming up. You know, I'd love to have you back on the show if you, if you want to come back. And I, I thank you from the bottom of my heart for coming on here. Well, thank you very much for, for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. And if I could just plug in uh, one, one last little uh, uh, component, uh, what I'm currently working on and what my office is currently working on uh, is that we are looking back into history uh, as far back as we can to see uh, what was promised by both uh, liberal 
and conservative federal governments to indigenous peoples. Uh, what recommendations have been done throughout history to improve the living conditions uh, and the overall uh, health of First Nations people. Uh, and uh, we're going to compile that information. And, and uh, my sense uh, from what I've seen thus far, and this work should be completed before, uh, before Christmas this year, but uh, what the sense that I'm getting is that regardless of uh, who has been in power throughout Confederation or since Confederation, uh, is not so is not too much different, uh, and so uh, I, I think it's the political parties that need to adapt and change to what our needs are in 2020, uh, because our needs are not necessarily the same as they were in 1950 or how they will be uh, 30 years from now. But these these political parties, um, I, I think, uh, would do themselves well if they would uh, start listening. Uh, we would we would be a much better country for it. Right. I mean, you are, a, uh, well, originally a, a conservative. I'm still a liberal for now. And I think of, you know, if they would just listen, how is it they can't hear you say the same message that Jody Wilson-Rainbow would say, that somebody else would say, even our activists like uh, Russ Daibo, you know, I don't agree with him on everything, but he is brilliant. And I think that there's so much we all agree on as Indigenous people. And I get really frustrated with the lack of colonial politics and uh, parties that will listen, even the Green Party. I mean, I love Elizabeth May, but um, a lot of the party members are so racist. And I, they, and it's a, a true ignorance in that sense where it's just they don't understand, right? So I don't mean it in, a, in an awful way, just that bigger picture, they don't get us. <laughs> no, I, I think unfortunately it exists in, in every party, perhaps more in a particular party, who knows, but... Uh... You know, like I said, I, I'm just happy I'm independent. I, I speak with an Algonquin voice now and it's and I've taken the partisanship away because uh, before even uh, in, in, in the indigenous circles, there's a lot of people that uh, uh, five, six, seven years ago, I didn't agree with it. I didn't agree with because of the partisanship. It, it was either you're with me or against me. Yeah. Uh, but now I, I've learned um, throughout the... The, the tough ordeal that I went through that, uh, you know, I respect the work that people do, whether I agree with them or not. Uh, I, I think we all have a voice. We should all use it as best as we can, uh, but in a moderate and respectful way. And uh, Indigenous people, by and large, uh, have always, uh, for the most part, been respectful. Uh, and that's what we have to continue because that's what separates us a lot of times from, from other non-Indigenous uh, politicians and people who work in in uh, different domains. It's respect. It's important. I think we shoulder um, not just our ancestors, but also like the the treaties are a spiritual covenant. And then on top of that, we want to represent our people and our families in a good way. So I feel like we have that responsibility on our shoulders that maybe non-Indigenous don't. <laughs> so I think that's part of it. But what a pleasure. Yeah. So I'm going to uh, go into my ending here and just say Indigenous have been talking about our issues, sharing our traumas in reports, commissions, and public hearings just so it can be regularly disregarded. No more. Honor our words. Honor the treaties. Listen to politicians in their policies and platforms. And if they don't recognize the marginalized in their budgets with Gender Equity Plus, if they're cutting violence prevention program services, cutting Indigenous education, uterus health choices, gay straight alliances, know that you're 
vote to that party negatively uh, impacts marginalized people. Demand that they implement the Truth and Reconciliation Commission calls to actions. The recommendations of the Royal Commission on Aboriginal Peoples. The multiple reports about child welfare reform. The violence prevention programs and now 231 calls to justice from the National Inquiry on missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. Denying those reports is a form of abuse called gaslighting. Our people are experiencing extreme racism in the justice, health, political and health institutions, educational uh, institutions with multiple reports that say the same things. Demand change from election platforms and politicians. If they don't understand colonialism, racism, privilege, sexism, they literally have zero business running. This should be understood by all parties or local politicians, community organizations, sports organizations. A really great article I read out loud in episode 62 is Truth Before Truth, How Non-Indigenous Canadians Become Allies. Also, I talk a lot about cultural safety and how you can create a safer space for Indigenous people, people of color, those with disabilities and LGBTQ2 plus to speak. Um, look at it as first aid for marginalization. Do something. Having good intentions is not enough. It takes action to make change. Speak out against racism. Ask questions of those with more understanding. Find allies. Create a support system for yourself so that you can advocate for culturally safe approaches. And that actually, I'm going to pause and just go back to Patrick and say, you know, one thing I've learned over the course of uh, the years of doing this is that we all need um, a safe place for us to talk about our experiences when we do this work. And um, I always felt that you were abandoned, but that's, again, that's like a media projection, maybe not necessarily the, the actual case. Well, uh, I, I don't know if I was abandoned because I, I didn't, I didn't really expect uh, them to be supportive or, you know, to be in a position to defend me. Uh, but, uh, you know, look, I, like I said uh, earlier, uh, I learned the hard way, but uh, there's, there's a few good things that came out of that and that uh, is is for you know like as an example for for all your listeners and viewers um, you know if you or somebody you know uh, needs help get out get, get out and get that help uh, it's free um, and, and you can change a life and it's important for people as well to know that they have a voice and you don't necessarily you know I tried the banging on the tables approach um, you know, you look good on TV, you look good in little clips and people see that you're passionate, but um, people will see that when, when, pe when you're respectful and you show that you have a voice and you use your voice in a respectful way, uh, that goes a lot further than, than banging on the tables. But the importance is, is to use the voice, regardless of what your position is on, on something or what you're trying to seek or what solutions you're trying to bring out about. Uh, it, it's important to use that voice because if we don't, then nobody listens and for the people who are using their voice now um, it's hard for for people to listen but the more and more people speak out um, I, I I think that uh, that will be a good uh, springboard for for greater change mm. rather than rather than always hearing the same same leaders and the same people all over you know again and again it, it's time for different people to to get out there and voice their concerns mm-hmm um, internalized racism or lateral violence is another form of violence Indigenous or marginalized people experience by the structure of racism. 
um, because of the Indian Act and Indian Residential School and other land clearing policies. Um, another great resource is racialequitytools.org by Donna Bevins about what internalized racism is. Uh, Do's and Don'ts for Bystander Intervention by the American Friends of Service Committee. What to do when you witness instances of racism black. I, by the way, I don't, I'm not following out in Ottawa and uh, Montreal, but we're having like really bad attacks against, you know, Chinese people. Um, well, everybody, even we've had like, you know, two, three um, uh, LGBTQ2 plus attacks. And um, so that's basically what I'm trying to address here is like, what do you do in this case? And some of it's actually being recorded, which is good. But what's it like out there in Montreal? Is there, there a lot of like uh, attacks on people? Well, I think from what I've, uh, I, well, I don't watch much media, but when I, when I do watch, um, it doesn't seem uh, to be as uh, perhaps um, pervasive as other areas in the country at the moment. But like I said, I, I, I don't tend to watch the media too much anymore. I don't blame uh, you. <laughs> you know, I, I, you know, it's just when, when I was growing up, you know, they used to tell us what the news were. Uh, they didn't try to convince us. Today, they're trying to convince or uh, to put their own individual spin. And, you know, I, I don't like to be told how to think and uh, what's, uh, you know, what's uh, the, the views of other people. I have my own views, but uh, sure. it doesn't be as bad now. But you, obviously, we never know. Things could change very fast. Well, out here in Calgary, we are definitely getting, like, people spitting on each other, um, throwing their shoulder into people, all sorts of things. And... Uh, you know, and then it's it's based in racism. So, and and that really sucks. Uh, there's some, you know, anti-trans, like one, the spitting incident that I'm thinking about was right on a rainbow um, flag, right, a sidewalk that they were, you know, doing a virtual recording for Pride coming up. And uh, one of their, our drag kings got uh, spit on. So, you know, this is kind of to address that about what you do when you see those instances of racism anti-black, anti-Muslim, anti-trans, or other oppressive interpersonal violence and harassment. And you make your presence known as a witness, recorded if you can, uh, make eye contact with the person being harassed and ask them if they want support, move closer to the person being targeted if possible. And if you feel that you can do so, create a distance or barrier between the attacker and being the person being harassed. If it's safe to do so, the person being uh, har harassed consents film, record, it's easier to delete it later. Uh, take cues from the person being harassed, but do what you have to do to be safe. Um, and don't tone police the person being harassed. Assess your surroundings, pull others nearby if you can, working as a team is good. And um, can you move to a safer place? Don't call the police. For many communities experiencing harassment, no. The police can cause a greater danger for the person being harassed. And I'll tell you, I do work with the Calgary police um, to some extent, and they have a diversity uh, committee. So these are not issues that I'm, you know, <laughs> telling people don't report. I, there has to be some pretty severe danger for me to want to call the police because they escalate the situation for me. Um, and until we can start creating a safer space for police in the public, like it, that's why I would say don't call unless you're being told to. Don't escalate the situation. The goal is to get the person to safety and not incite further violence from the attacker. 
but don't do nothing because silence is dangerous. It communicates approval and leaves the victim high and dry. And I've seen a uh, case of that in Edmonton where there was a ton of people on the bus, but nobody spoke up. So if you find yourself too nervous or afraid to speak out, move closer to the person being harassed and communicate your support with your body and teach your kids to be accountable because they're learning it from somewhere. So if you're experiencing emotional distress and want to talk, you can call the First Nation and Inuit Hope for Wellness helpline at 1-855-242-3310. It is open 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and they also have a text option if you go to hopeforwellness.ca. Uh, violence is my everyday reality. Every Indigenous generation has faced it. That's why I started this podcast, to speak freely, without interruption, without tone police, without leadership shaming, without gaslighting questions. Many people don't want to hear Indigenous opinion, but sure want to tell us theirs, usually by people who know nothing about Indigenous, know nothing about colonialism, the constant surveillance of Indigenous people, our protests, our vigils, and our rights. Uh, microaggressions, people dealing with internalized racism, folks who are gatekeepers and survive off the status quo, or people who are really still in their trauma and are, you know, depleting those personal resources. Internal and external racism is an everyday reality for Indigenous people, and that's why I started this podcast as a boundary to be heard. So, um, the next part I want to go to is a thank you to my ancestors. I want to say thank you to my granny, um, to my mom of what strength looks like through your example. I want to thank my dad for teaching me to be strong and blunt. My stepmom for showing me what a proud culture is through her Austrian roots and teaching me to be a proud Calgarian. It is through her I am a second generation proud Calgarian. Uh, thank you to my husband Darcy for producing and editing this show. On top of being my husband, my childhood friend, and the father of our child, he has supported me down my journey of the Red Road and witnessed decades of racism and sexism. And to our child, who we are blessed to learn from daily, I am honored you chose us. You give me daily accountability to be a better and stronger person. I hope my daughter and my family will be proud in the future of us trying to discuss these present day issues. And I hope that, you know, Senator Brazo, myself, and other people are going to make life better for the next generations. Um, again, my Patreon account is Native Calgarian, where you can pledge and support. Thank you to all my donors. If you did one donation or had to quit for financial reasons, just know I appreciate your support. If you value listening and can afford to give, thank you. To those who cannot afford to give but listen in, I'd love to hear from you at nativeyyc at gmail.com where you can send in your comments or questions. We also have a YouTube channel I would love for you to subscribe to. Um, our podcasts are on Amplified, iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. And I want to end uh, with giving the side eye to those Calgary rabbits. You're lucky I'm not tradish. And my beautiful cousin would respond, or you'd be in my dish. Thank you for listening. <laughs>